Uh, we are in chapter 12. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 28 to 34. Reading this morning from uh, the English Standard Version translation, Matthew. Excuse me, did I say Matthew? Mark. I've been doing other things for the last three weeks. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them, disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, ask him, ask Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him. Any more questions? Let's pray. Father, enable us this morning to uh, think, think, and think, guided by your Holy Spirit, into what this passage in Mark's Gospel will say to us. Father, help us to gain much out of this brief story. Help us to focus on the things that are significant. Help us to draw the applications that are relevant for our lives today. And enable us in all of this to follow Jesus more faithfully. This we pray in his name. Amen. Now I want us to think for a moment about where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Um, This is the last week of Jesus' life. And, And during this last week, he's in Jerusalem. He's been there since Sunday. He comes in each day, goes back to Bethany at night. And he principally plants himself in the temple where he's totally exposed to all of his enemies. Uh, The Pharisees, who are very much the religious conservatives, they've had the greatest influence upon the people of Israel. Uh, Their chief understanding of one's relationship to God is all about legalism. It's all about obedience to the law. Not just the law as it's written, but the law as it has been interpreted. So they had a whole set of interpretations called the oral tradition, which they used to, to talk about the law of God. Strict law keeping. Every single law absolutely essential to their way of understanding their relationship with God. Then on the other hand, the other chief enemies were the Sadducees. Uh, they actually controlled the religious establishment. Uh, they were the high priestly folks. They controlled the temple and the sacrifices and the worship there. And because the temple was exceedingly wealthy, Jerusalem was the wealthiest city on the face of the earth at that point. It was the wealthiest city in all of the Roman Empire, had the greatest treasury. Uh, They partook of that great wealth. Now, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were enemies of Jesus. 
because Christ threatened these religious groups from two different directions. He threatened the Pharisees because clearly what he was saying was all about grace and forgiveness rather than law-keeping in all of its details. Then there was the whole thing of the temple. When Jesus came and cleansed the temple, which was just a temporary kind of thing, interrupting what was going on, the Sadducees recognized that if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who people say Jesus is, then all of this temple stuff comes to an end. That means all of their income comes to an end. It means their entire way of life comes to an end. So on the one hand, you have those who believe that keeping the law of God absolutely to every particular is the way to have a right relationship with God. On the other hand, you have those who think that, well, we're the priestly caste. God has blessed us with all of this great money. It's kind of a prosperity approach to what it means to be religious. I'm religious because it makes me money, is more or less the Sadducees' program for life. And the Pharisees, we're religious because it makes us feel awfully good about ourselves because no one else, no other people, are as good as we are in terms of keeping the law of God. So you have this going on during the week. These enemies. But now you have a story that's really a bright spot in all of this controversy. Because this person, who is a scribe, who's been trained like the Pharisees, probably trained like the Sadducees, yet his demeanor is very different. He has truly come to Jesus as a teacher. And his question is simply this. What is the greatest commandment? In other words, living life under God, as all of us Israelites will confess, living life under God with all of these commandments we have in the Bible, what commandment is the most important? What commandment is ultimate? What is the most important thing that I should know about life? Now that's his question. We live in a day and age in comparison to what this scribe was thinking about in which life is very much a game, especially American culture. Life is very much a kind of a game, lived on the horizontal. Very, very few Americans would say, our most important values are vertical. Most Americans are going to say, our most important values are horizontal. It's living life on this plane. The question raised by this scribe is an indictment on the American way of life. Because it's a question with reference to the vertical. It's a question with reference to God. Everything else is a game, and that game is trivial pursuit. In comparison to the question of God, everything else is trivial. And that's the point we need to see with respect to this story. It's really a contrast between how people commonly live in this world, what they value the most, and the question of this scribe. What does God ask of us in terms of what is most important? Now, here is what we have to see. If I were preaching to you this morning as those who are not believers, and I believe that most of you are, 
But still, nevertheless, preaching to you as believers, the message is basically the same. We are, in fact, entranced with this world and we are constantly caught up in trivial pursuits. The only way forward, the only way upward, is to turn our backs on the way we have come, this game of trivial pursuits, where the focus ultimately is upon ourselves. The way forward is to look to Christ. The only way, the ultimate way, to God himself. The answer to what is most important in life, living under God, is to be found in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when we come to this passage, I want us to recognize that it begins with a question, right? I mean, that's the scribe, question. So let's consider the questions. The first question is, is there an ultimate commandment? Is there a first commandment? Is there some kind of prime directive from God? That's really what the scribe is asking. Implicit in his statement is first and foremost, not just what is the first commandment, but is there a first commandment? Is there a prime directive before God? So we'll look at that question. The second question is this. Granted that there is this prime directive, granted that there is this first and foremost commandment, what is it and what does it really mean? And then finally... The question that the text brings up is this. Jesus says to the scribe who asked these very significant questions, he says to him, you are not far off from the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Is that a good place to be? Is that a safe place to be? Is that the place where you want to die? Being not far off from the kingdom of God. Those are the three things we're going to look at as we consider this text. Now, the first one. Is there this prime directive? Is there this most important commandment from God for life under God? Well, there's some historical background here. The Jews at this point have been looking at all of the law And they saw indications in the Old Testament that not every law was as important as every other law. Now, that's pretty clear from the penalties. Uh, Everywhere else in the ancient Middle East, by the way, during the time of Moses when this law was given, every place else, stealing things, you could be put to death. Theft, property theft, property crimes, you could be put to death. Not in Israel. Israel is the first nation and the only nation in the ancient world that said property is never as valuable as human life. And therefore, you could never be penalized with death because you stole someone else's property. That's evidence of the divine nature of the Old Testament law. God understands, because God created us, that property is never as valuable as persons. People are always more important. So therefore, the violation of a property law could never be as serious as the violation of a person-related law. The Jews saw this. They saw that there's this this thing going on here, 
Property laws get punished this way. Normally by economic restitution, by the way. Not imprisonment, not incarceration, not putting somebody where they have to be paid for by the taxpayers, but you have to make restitution. You have to restore wholly the people who are hurt by what you do. Property crimes. No imprisonment in the Old Testament for property crimes. But person crimes, there are very severe penalties for person crimes, especially if you take a life. If you take a life, the only penalty the Old Testament really knows is you forfeit your own life. It's that severe. So clearly people are far more important than property. So the laws related to hurting persons are much more important than the laws related to hurting property. That's an important distinction. So the Jews are looking at all this, and then they realize that there's laws related to worshiping of God, that there are a number of, of laws related to worshiping God that absolutely the penalty is death. Okay, God's the most important person of all. So if we violate things related to God, if we violate things related to persons, we can put to death. How much more if we violate things related to God, we can be put to death? God is the most important person. So they saw this, this, this ranking. And sometimes they called them the heavier matters of the law, sometimes, or the weightier matters of the law. Sometimes they called them the, the lesser matters of the law. So the question then comes, what's the most important? What's the ultimate? What's the foremost question? What's the really big directive from God with respect to how we're supposed to live our life under God? Now remember, this is a friendly question. The scribe really wants to know. You want to know, I hope. I hope you want to know what is most important to God. Because if that's not important to you, the Bible predicts that your life is going to be destroyed by what you do make ultimate. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, in Jesus' response to this question, he's agreeing that there really is a most important prime directive from God. There is a truly most important commandment. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Highest duty, lesser duties. And that's really a significant concept. Because some people have claimed that all of God's laws are exactly the same. That the law is the law is the law. You break something, you, you, you basically, it doesn't matter which one, you're just as guilty with respect to God. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying here. If he grants that there is a highest duty, then he's also granting that there are lesser duties. Now, there are two sorts of people who don't agree with Jesus here. Critics of the Bible. Have you ever uh, been involved with someone who basically said something like this? Well, why is it that you Bible-thumping believers will pick and choose which commandments you're going to obey? Uh, you've got these food laws in the Old Testament, and you say you don't have to obey those anymore, but then you've got these moral laws about sexuality, and you claim that you have to. It's the same law. Who gives you the right to pick and choose? If it's God's law, you're being inconsistent. If it's God's law and you really believe these laws, then you ought to obey those laws. 
Now, what's the basis there? The basis is the idea that if it's God's law, it's God's law, it's God's law, and if it's God's law, it can't be changed. It can never be changed. It's going to be the same forever. So food laws, in their mind, are just as obligatory as, let's say, the laws of marriage. And that's when they say, you don't obey the food laws. Why do you think we should obey the marriage laws? That's the argument. Then you have some who are not critics, but who are zealots for the law. They agree with the critics. If it's God's law, it's God's law, it's God's law, it's God's law. It could never change. Therefore, even as Christians, they say, we need to follow the food laws. And we need to even follow the clothing laws. And we even need to follow the you know, haircut laws. That's why some of us think that beards are good. <laughs> You've seen them. You've seen these different groups. And they will come to you and basically say, this is as important as anything else in your life. Don't eat meat. You ought to dress a certain way. Don't ever touch your body with a tattoo. Uh, ladies, be careful if your haircuts are too short. No, too long. No, too short. Yeah, guys, make sure your hair isn't too long. I mean, they, they, will, they will come in and resurrect these Old Testament categories of law and place them upon Christians today. You've seen it. We've seen it. see it all the time. But in fact, Jesus says... There are greater and lesser duties. And the scribes were understanding there are greater and lesser duties. And the scribe is coming to say, because there are greater and lesser duties in the law of God, what's most important? What is ultimate? And by the way, remember, we already covered this back in Mark chapter 7. Jesus pronounced all foods to be clean. Remember that? Uh, if God creates a law, God has the right to change the law for his particular purposes. And all of the ceremonial laws expired when Jesus went to the cross. And all the food laws expired when Jesus went to the cross. Jesus declared all of those things which are symbolic and pointing to the time of Jesus to be done with. All done with. All done with. But the greater matters of the law have never expired. There's no indication ever in the New Testament that the greater matters of the law have ever expired. Now, what Jesus is going to tell us, though, is this. If you have a prime directive, if you have something from God that God says is of ultimate importance, it will color everything else. It will color everything else. And so Jesus in Matthew's Gospel says, hey, Understand this, these two great commands, which we're going to get to in a moment, these two great commands, all the other commandments of the law and the prophets depend upon those two. Which is why we can say that the, these two great commands he's going to talk about summarize the ten. They summarize everything else. Everything else is dependent upon these two things. Now, I'm going to draw an application here that's very, very significant because it's part of the way God has created this world. God says that the ultimate directive 
for human life is God's word, and it affects everything else. Whatever you hold, whatever you make in your life ultimate will affect everything else. That's the way it is. Whatever is most fundamentally important to you will color everything. Whatever you treasure the most will impact everything else in your life. It will change who you are. It will create your identity. And it will color every relationship you have. It will color everything you do. It will color everything you think about life. That's what is significant about this passage and significant about asking, is there an ultimate prime directive from God? Because if you don't adopt God's, if that isn't yours, you will adopt your own. That's the significant thing we need to understand and think about. I was reading a missionary letter this week from, from someone who, whose missionary endeavors are with Chinese people who've come to the United States. So here's a story that was related to her. In China, the question is often asked of people, would you rather be poor and happy or rich and unhappy. The response of most women is this. I would rather cry inside my BMW than laugh on my bicycle. Because the horizontal and having a lot of money appears to many Chinese to be the ultimate value in life. But I tend to think that we could go down to Hollywood, Rodeo Drive, and ask any number of women walking along the street, you know, dressed to the max and so forth, what would you rather, would you rather cry in the back of your BMW or laugh (laughs) on your bicycle? And you would find the same answer ultimately. Life totally wrapped up in this value of owning things, finding the meaning of life in what we possess. But that's not the only thing people have adopted in our culture. What if it's important to you what other people think about you? What if that's your ultimate driving force in life? We have a whole generation of youngsters growing up where what has been part of the American culture for a very long time has now become intensively a part of the American culture in terms of social media. All sorts of stories and all sorts of studies have now indicated that a person's sense of value is connected to and related to how many likes they get on social media. This is not something we can just easily laugh about anymore. 
The studies are indicating that people have become so addicted through social media to what other people think about them that their lives can move into nothing less than clinical forms of depression because they're not getting enough notices, affirmatives on social media. Those relationships aren't even real. And yet their lives are being buffeted, manipulated, formed, deformed because of a simple thing of whether somebody read what they posted or looked at their pictures and hit that little button that says like. Anything that you adopt that becomes the most important thing to you. Could be sports, could be job, career, anything that you, could be family, anything that you adopt that is the most important thing to you will form your life and deform your life in ways and directions that ultimately will be destructive to you. Is there a most important directive, command, duty from God? Is there? Jesus says yes. Now the question is, what is it? Now, the rabbi's asking this question, I mean, the scribe is asking this question, and Jesus says, uh, what, he begins by quoting the Old Testament. Of course, because that's where this is given. Uh, right during the time that the Israelites are, are leaving uh, the desert of Sinai, they're getting ready to move into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you have these words that, that, that God has given to Moses to announce to Israel. Deuteronomy Chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, or the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, it's called the Shema because the first word there, hear or listen, is the Hebrew word Shema. The statement that follows is absolutely central to the Old Testament and the Jews of Jesus' day, to their confession of faith and to their understanding of God. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now, that was incredibly important to the Jewish people during the time of Moses because, you know, for, for hundreds of years now, the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt, but even in their, in their background and ancestry, uh, beginning with, with Abraham, they are very concerned with the fact that you've got all this paganism all around them. And in all of this paganism, you have this idea that the divine nature can be broken up and individualized in all of these different gods. So you've got the gods of the Egyptians, you've got the gods of the Canaanites, you've got the gods of the ancient Babylonians where Abraham came from. So the divine nature can be deposited in all these different smaller gods. And these smaller gods rule over Egypt. They rule over Canaan. They rule over ancient Babylonia. All of that. But God has Moses declare this. Yahweh is our God. And Yahweh is one. The concept there is the one that cannot be divided. The one that is absolute the one that is indivisible, the one that is ultimate, 
the one that is unique, the one who does not share his divinity with anything else at all, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the earth not divine, people not divine, angels not divine, demons not divine. None of these deities that any of these other nations ever worship, none of them are divine. God is in a category of his own. That's the confession of Israel. That's why God is ultimate. That's the basis of why God is to be worshipped. Because he is our ultimate creator. Now, this was also important in Jesus' day. Because nothing has really changed in terms of paganism. The Greco-Roman Empire is filled with all of its gods. You've got the Greek polytheism, then you've got the unimaginative, non-creative Romans who just simply borrow the same gods and give them different names. Right? Same thing. Uh, Greek, Latin. That's all it is. It's just a translation. You know, Whether it's Zeus or Jupiter, same thing. Same difference. Now... Paganism is always attempting to divide up the divinity and to put it into other little divinities so that even in the Roman Empire, Caesar, whether starting with Caesar Augustus or all the way to Caesar Nero about the time of Mark, he can be worshipped because he too is divine. The position of Jesus is clear when he announces that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him. The position is clear. Jesus is speaking of the one true God, the only God, the God who's created everything else. Now, in reciting this, Jesus is saying, this is ultimate. This is the highest principle. This is the prime directive in all of life. It's to love God. It's to love this God. Only this God. This God alone is the maker of heaven and earth. It's to love this God. He's the highest, ultimate concern in our lives. This is what life is all about. Making God first and foremost in terms of how we live. But then Jesus says there's a second that's like it. And when he means it's like it, he means in terms of, of, of what we're to value and how we are to value it. The second is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything that is in you, which is to essentially say to love God above and beyond how you love yourself. But then love your neighbor no less than the way that you care about yourself. The way that you love yourself. The context, because Jesus is quoting from Leviticus 19.18, is important. So let me just read this and say a few more things about what it means to love one another. Love others as you love yourself. So in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9, begins this way. When you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, nor shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, 
Now listen to this. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The idea being that you've got this harvest. Harvest at about 95%, leave the last 5%. Why? There are going to be poor people among you. You don't have to harvest that and distribute it to them in some kind of food distribution program. No. They're to come into your fields and they are to glean the last parts themselves. So there's the whole sense of the dignity of labor. Very important principle of welfare here. We won't. To really love your neighbor is to love like this. Not, by the way, to love them through the government distribution programs. It's to love them this way. But going on. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, what this means is that the statement, love your neighbor as you love yourself, means you're going to treat him with justice. You're going to treat him with righteousness. You're always going to be caring for your neighbor in accordance with what is true and what is right and what is good. It really is the golden rule. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. To do justice. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Because of the vertical, you live out the horizontal. In love, care, justice, compassion for all those around you. Now, this has had a great influence upon the church, these two commandments. And the New Testament church shows many evidences in the epistles of how the teaching of Jesus was understood and applied in, in all sorts of different church situations. 1 John 4, 20, 21 makes it crystal clear. This is what the Apostle John says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So John is telling us that these two commandments are so linked together that if you love God, if you truly love God, you will love your neighbor. But if you do not love your neighbor, it's also true that you really do not love God. So, Christian life. What is ultimate? What is the prime directive? We're to love 
God supremely, which will lead us to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is what life is all about. I'm going to say this again. We have our roles in life. We have our jobs. We have our families. We have our friendships. We have our hobbies. Compared to the prime directive of life, loving God supremely, loving your neighbor as yourself, everything else on the horizontal belongs in that game called Trivial Pursuit. You may enjoy it. You may like it. It's not that it's wrong. It's not that it's bad, necessarily. But the most important, the ultimate, that needs to guide and direct our lives is that we would love God supremely and love others even as we would love ourselves. This is what we are called to live for. Now, we come then to the last question. Um, Jesus says to the scribe, he summarizes what Jesus says. He says, teacher, you're right. You know, to love God with everything, with all of our understanding, and to, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, this is a far greater value than all the sacrifices and stuff that we can ever give. And Jesus noted that he had answered wisely, and Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Now, think about what Jesus is saying there. It's, it's obviously an encouragement, right? He's encouraging the guy. You're on the right track. You're on the right track, so, so keep moving in this direction. But here's what we've got to understand. To be not far off from the kingdom of God means this. He's not there yet. He's not yet saved. He does not yet have everlasting life. He's still spiritually dead in some sense. He's still lost. But he's on the right path, the right direction. We could say that it looks like God is actually working within him. And then we have something Jesus said that's very significant. It's John chapter 7, verse 16 and 17. He's answering some critics because they're saying, who are you, Jesus, to be claiming all of this? And Jesus says, if any man is willing to do God's will, he will know of my teaching, whether it is from God or whether it's simply from myself. What Jesus is saying there is that the key to understanding everything, ultimately, is the willingness to do God's will. And if someone is willing to do God's will in the deepest recesses of his life, if he understands in the deepest recesses of his heart and his desire is, I want to love God, I want to love my neighbor as myself, Jesus is saying, then you'll understand who I am. You will understand that I am the heaven-sent Son who came into this world to be the Redeemer. 
Now, no one really wants to do God's will apart from God beginning to seek that person and to work in that person's heart and life. The grace of God comes first. No one has ever loved Jesus except Jesus loved him first. No one has ever loved God except God loved him first and began that work. But here's the last thing we've got to understand this morning. This prime directive to love God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself is still a prime directive. It is still law. And it's not gospel. You can't be saved by setting your heart upon loving God with everything in you. And you can't be saved by seeking and setting your heart upon loving your neighbor as yourself. Why? Since Genesis chapter 3, since the fall, no mere human being has ever loved God ultimately or loved his neighbor as himself except one, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the only person in this world who has ever loved God supremely and ultimately. Jesus is the only one who's ever loved his neighbor as himself. No one has ever come close. Jesus didn't come close. Jesus is the fullness of the love of the Father. Jesus is the fullness of the love of his neighbor. Jesus did what you and I have never done. Now, there is a law that you and I have fulfilled. And we've done so perfectly. It's the law of self. We have perfectly lived out the law of self, where we have placed self first and foremost again and again and again. We put self first when what other people think about us is so important. We put self first when our career means everything to us. We are putting self first when we say my family means everything to me. Because the truth is, if these are the things that you seek to satisfy yourself, you're no different than what Jeremiah says in that wonderful metaphor where he talks about we are drinking water from broken cisterns that can't hold water. Or like Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, when he goes after everything in life and tries all these different pursuits, he winds up saying this, whether it's women, whether it's wine, whether it's wisdom, whether it's achievement, emptiness, emptiness, all of it's emptiness, vanity, vanity, all of it is vanity because it doesn't truly satisfy what God created the self for. Jonah in the belly of the whale, and in the whole experience of repentance from having run away from God in his prayer, says this, those who pursue worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The ESV says forfeit the steadfast love, meaning the steadfast love of God. 
you pursue the law of self and you will forfeit everything. In Psalm 16, David says that those who pursue false idols will multiply their sorrows. There there is no other orientation in life except the one that God himself has given. That's the ultimate thing in life. But you can't do it. I won't quit there. But coming to the point of recognizing that you and I can't do it is indispensable with respect to really being not just close to the kingdom of God, but being in the kingdom of God. Until you come to the point where in your heart of hearts you are able to say, I really want to love you, God, but I can't. It's only at some point in your life when you reach that point that then you begin to see what did Jesus live and die for? Jesus came not to enable you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus came to pay for the great sin of you not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus came to pay for the sin that you don't love others as you love yourself. Jesus came to pay for the sin that you have loved yourself according to the law of self above everything else. Jesus came because you need him. You need his life and you need his death. You need his death as an atonement for your sin. And you need his life as God crediting to you his perfect righteousness. So that Jesus is your substitute. Jesus is your representative. Jesus is your redeemer. That's what you need. That's what I need. And that's the final answer to Jesus' encounter with this scribe. You are not far off from the kingdom. We trust that he was on that path toward the kingdom. And we trust that after the resurrection of Christ and on the day of Pentecost, he was among those thousands who finally understood Jesus is the Messiah who died for our sins, who was buried, who was raised on the third day in order that we might have everlasting life. To parents, raise your children so they see in you that life is ultimately about Jesus. And young people, you are never, never too young to think about what is most important in life 
and to realize it must be Jesus. And for us who are older, the trivial pursuits of life can so cloud our everyday ways of doing things. Turn from that road. Turn around. See Jesus again to follow him. That's what it's all about. You will begin to love God more. You'll begin to love your neighbor as you rest and trust in Jesus. Jesus himself said, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Your soul will only have rest when it's trusting in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we would ask and pray this morning that you would work in us to love you through your Son, Jesus. To be grateful for the grace that is ours. To have the strength to turn away from trivial pursuits. To really want to walk in your ways And to know that though it's imperfect in us, you are what matters the most. Work that out in us. And may it show up in how we care for others. In Jesus' name, amen.